With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us. Welcome to the seventh episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and then also to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, privacyprofessor.org, symbus360.com, and privacyguidance.com. So today's episode is going to be so interesting. And as a little bit of background, I must say, I am a huge fan of Philip K. Dick's movies, or not his movies, but his novels and his stories. Many of them, though, were made into movies such as Blade Runner and Total Recall and Minority Report. And It's really remarkable how so many of his concepts from his stories from as far back as the 1950s are now reality. And I certainly think of those writings as I hear, you know, more about the initiatives to make humans passive participants within the Internet of Things or what I'll call the IoT. And this is done by implanting or putting on wearables with a wide variety of different types of computers, computing devices, and computer chips within them. In particular, I'm thinking about the swivels that are implanted in humans in the Philip K. Dick 1955 short story that was called Service Call. The swivels basically were used to control the thinking of the populations at large. Well, today we have IoT devices of all kinds, those from healthcare providers and those direct to consumers and others that have basically nothing to do with healthcare, but they can dramatically improve people's lives if used responsibly. However, if the devices do not have security built in and if rules for how the data is allowed to be used are not established, they will become security and privacy nightmares in the IoT. Just consider a few examples of some IoT devices that can be worn by or be implanted within humans today. Back in 2007, then U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney had a smart pump implanted directly into his heart. However, 
he was afraid that hackers would get access to the controls to that pacemaker, that wireless connected pacemaker. So he had his doctors disable the wireless access. Now considered the U.S. National Football League, or NFL, is also chipping their players, at least within the uniforms they play in. It, just as one example, in 2014, 17 of the NFL stadiums had RFID scanners installed to communicate with the RFID chips in the football players' shoulder pads to track how they moved on the field during the games. And the sensors track not only where the players are at on the field, but they also logged how quickly the players move, their acceleration, and other types of personal activity and other characteristics in real time. This data has been made available on TV and in the stadiums and on the monitors and to NFL apps. The sensors were upgraded in 2015 to add even more intimate physical aspects of the player's body, such as their heart rate, temperature, and lung capacity. We also have um, in workers and employees the use of smart implants. The use of them first came under my radar anyway around 2006. And at that time, I read that a surveillance company called City Watcher required their employees with access to a secured and sensitive data center to have an implanted chip to control that authorized access. Now, more recently, I saw that Epicenter, which is a tech company based in Sweden, has implanted a grain-sized and shaped implant into the hands of at least 400 of their employees. Now, these chips store personalized security information. Each chipped worker can then open locked doors with the wave of their hands, operate photocopiers, pay for their cafe purchases, all with this chip that's implanted within them. By September 2015, at least 10,000 additional workers worldwide had been chipped with similar types of implants. And now it's estimated that anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000 of these uh, employees with such types of chips are actually being used. You can also have payments. People are getting implants in their hands that store payment data, and it uses near-field communications, which you'll often hear referenced as NFC, uses those types of readers to make Apple Pay payments. Now, listen to this. Some medical device companies have also been talking about at conferences about the great possibilities of implanting chips into infants just as soon as they are born so they can track their vital signs along with other physical and biological data to track their developmental progress from that point forward and to keep all of their health records right within them, within those implanted chips that they got just as soon as they were born. There have already been instances in the U.S. when children were prohibited from private preschools because of their DNA showing such things as they were potentially going to be allergic to peanuts. So just imagine if that 
data in those implanted chips becomes available to, you know, a, a variety or a wide range of people and what they might do with it. So this is a big topic. And, you know, we could speak with you for a week about this huge and growing topic. But today I want to focus on the impl- uh, the implications of smart implantables and wearables, and in particular, the data security, privacy, and safety risks and harms that are very possible and have actually been realized over the years, many of them in low-tech ways, too, um, to those wearing them. And I have the perfect guest who is an expert in these areas to chat about with these different types of topics and concerns. And this is Dr. Katina Michael. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Michael. Dr. Katina Michael is a professor in in the School of Computing and Information Technology at the University of Wollongong in Australia. Katina is the IEEE Technology and Society Editor-in-Chief and IEEE Consumer Electronics Magazine Senior Editor. Since 2008, she's been a board member of the Australian Privacy Foundation and also is the vice chair as well. Katina researches on the socio-ethical implications of emerging technologies. Now, I know she's written and edited at least six books, and I have one of them, which is great, about ubervalence, which is what we're going to get into here pretty quickly. She's also guest edited numerous special issue journals on themes that are related to radio frequency identification, which you'll often hear references RFID tags, um, also supply chain management, location-based services, and also innovation with surveillance and ubervalence. In 2017, Katina was awarded with the prestigious Brian M. O'Connell Award for Distinguished Service to the IEEE Society on the, society, on the social implications of technology. So, Katina, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so happy you're here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Good to be with you. Oh, well, this is a great topic, and, a, and I know our listeners are, get, are going to get so much from this. So, now, Katina, I've known you for several years, since I think maybe around 2006, 2007, and I know you've been working on surveillance and privacy issues since before I met you. So, what got you interested in privacy and surveillance topics and research to begin with, I mean, what, around what year did you start working in this field? Um, I couldn't think back to my uh, early years in high school in the 1990s, Rebecca, uh, when a lot of change was occurring. Personal computing entered homes, uh, barcodes entered retail stores. And I remember one particular visit from uh, a local bank in the area coming to us and saying, well, look, kids, these are the, this is the way you will be removing uh, and taking your cash out in the future using a key card. Um, 
And I remember just banking cents at that time. Uh, and I was thinking, I only have, you know, 80 cents. And they're saying to me yeah. that each transaction will cost a few dollars. Um, but that started my attention. I think as time went on, uh, I started studying more on the social implications, things like repetitive strain, uh, injury, uh, RSI in, in workers who worked on checkouts. Um, and then continued on to university where I studied IT in a cooperative program. Um, around about that time, I also met my husband, M.G. Michael, whom I've collaborated, collaborated with over the last sort of 23, 24 years. And Michael had these similar insights, but back in the 70s when the first bank card was actually introduced in 1974. And he started to think about, well, the ultimate trajectory of a card like this, it makes sense, would likely be the human body. And mm. so over time together, uh, with his experience both in law enforcement as a police officer and also uh, a humanities scholar in the philosophy and uh, theology areas, we began to use our combined uh, skill sets, myself in law, IT, to look at what is the technological trajectory of the microchip, the, the incredible semiconductor chip that has facilitated so much transaction processing, so much good, so much capacity and capability in buildings, uh, bettered our lives. How will that morph into the future, you know? And we went from this idea of, well, we've traditionally lugged things around to things that are wearable and finally potentially the ultimate ubervalence definition, which mm -hmm. is the implantable chip, which is more like your identifying chip for uh, online access and offline access for different applications. Well, and you, you talk about ubervalence, and I love that term, and our listeners need to know that that is a term that you and your husband, MG, actually coined. I mean, that's a, a term you came up with. So, you know, what inspired you or, or what about that word? I mean, it's perfect um, to, to use, but how did you come up with the term ubervalence and give a little bit of history about that? So, Rebecca, I've definitely helped Michael expand on the term, but it was the inspiration of he, he himself uh, okay. in a class that he was teaching back in 2006 uh, on the social implications of technology at the University of Wollongong, where the word just came out of his mouth. So MG okay. coined it in front of a live audience, and he was being pressed by the students. So what does mm -hmm. all this data mean? What does all this personal information mean when we're finding it on the net, when we're disclosing it to various vectors and various apps and various you know, industry and government bodies and to each other? Where are we at? What is going on here? And as technology becomes more pervasive, what's going on? And MG really tried to describe to the students, well, look, we've got black boxes in planes, we've got them in cars, and soon we're going to have them in people. And this notion of a big brother on the inside looking out, uh, which the Macquarie Dictionary placed in its official dictionary in the same year, is mm -hmm. really about surveillance and electronic surveillance, ubiquitous and pervasive electronic surveillance in the human body. It's a chip that's always on, always with you. It's invasive and it travails with you for a variety of applications and denotes the who, the where, the when, the what, and basically can predict even thoughts based on behavioral actions and monitoring of temperature, pulse rate, heart rate, and other physiological characteristics. But the term, as MG denotes it, 
has its roots in the German, the term Uber, which means over and above, almost like an exaggerated, and Valia from the French, the valence to watch. And the concept was very much inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche in his vision mm-hmm. of the Ubermensch, the Superman, the, the man who had powers beyond the ordinary human being, the amplified man with amplified abilities. And so this Ubervalence, this chip, this capacity to be amplifying oneself through extensions via technological uh, means being embedded in the body is really where we're going with this notion of ubervalence. And we see it uh, growing on the existing term of data valence, which was coined by Roger Clark, which is all about infrastructure and information and Internet of Things and building on top of it the last mile, that person node, that human being who's decorporalized and is now part of that network architecture, and that is ubervalence in a nutshell. Well, and you know, the way you talk about the, the superhuman, um, I can imagine, and I've, I've heard people talk who have had, they, they chose to embed different types of devices, computing devices within their own bodies. And when you hear them talk about, you know, their experience, it really is, you know, the way they describe it, oftentimes it is something like now I do have kind of a superhuman capability. I'm able to open my car without having to have the keys and start it and I can pay for things. But then you also have that superhuman um, aspect where it's the other people who are getting access to that data that is coming out of those devices. And oftentimes, maybe even the people who have the devices embedded don't even realize it. So, you know, all these devices being embedded within the body, how have you seen this practice or trend evolve over the years? Are you seeing things now that you hadn't even imagined in 2006? Certainly, um, we're seeing more varied devices being embedded in the body, not just for health purposes, but for non-medical. And so we're seeing devices that now may light up in the body, like a LED implanted beneath the surface of the skin um, when triggered so it glows? to turn on. It glows, yes. So you can yes. see it? Um, it's oh, my. A, yes, you can see it through the skin, and uh, it takes on various patterns, but at the moment, uh, most of them are provided by a company called uh, Wetware Grindhouse, and it's a circular North Star device. So you can do a fist pump with someone, and it, it'll light up, or you can activate it or shake it in a particular way, and it will light up when you need it to light up, perhaps in the dark, uh, when you're trying to find your way to the bathroom or to the kitchen. Um, There are other devices like magnets that are being inserted that allow you to lift magnetic uh, attracted objects, Um, devices like NFC chips, um, cryptographic storage devices uh, that might potentially in the future store all your passwords in a cryptographic and encrypted way. Um, But what's happening, I think, over time, people are becoming more brazen, whereas in the past, uh, there was a restorative function, a prosthetic function for types of implants, whether they were joint implants, heart, cochlea, brain implants. Now we're moving away from this paradigm and saying, potentially down the track, how could we repurpose these health-related or medical-related pacemakers for non-medical usage, maybe to pay for things, maybe to have secure access. 
maybe to do online trading or purchase of retail items uh, at a store um, or going through public transport. We know there are chips now um, in VIP passengers at SJ Rail in Sweden who pay a sum of money to store value on their implant and as inspectors come onto the train carriage, uh, they're able to just literally stick out their hand and have it scanned. And so we have a great number of more people experimenting, considering, thinking about implantation as a means of convenience, as a means to go cashless, as a means to enter this blockchain era that is promising so much. So imagine the implant facilitating the register of transactions and being that identity chip that people trust, um, which is not transferable, for instance, and trust in a secure way using cybersecure means to be that platform. And that's pretty much uh, what most of these grinders, most of these DIY implant companies, most of these epicenter, three-square market kinds of outfits are starting to promote as a rhetoric. Even Kaspersky Labs uh, got involved in one of the epicenter projects um, to look at the possible cybersecurity issues down the track. But with, it, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and what concerns me about that, too, is the fact that, well, I've been looking at medical devices for the past five or six years, and I've been very uh, disappointed, to say the least, in the fact that almost all medical devices lack appropriate security and privacy controls. And oftentimes when I talk with the engineers at the medical device companies, they say, oh, well, you know, we can't put security controls or privacy controls into these devices. There's, you know, there's just too much overhead for it. We don't have room to uh, incorporate that into our device. But then when I hear you talk about them repurposing such things as pacemakers and, you know, um, maybe some injection pumps and so on to do other things such as payment options, it's like, now, hey, something's, you know, something's not syncing up here. They're telling me they can't put in security and privacy controls, (laughs) but yet they're saying that they can put in all these other capabilities together, even more more data and to share more data and to use those devices in many other ways that are now going to be so much more risky in uh, such a wide variety of, of ways as well. So uh, that's I very agree. I so agree. I so agree with you. I mean, Medtronic uh, in 2014 won the cover of IEEE Spectrum saying we want one of these in every single human being. And it was literally a diagnostic device that would tell you uh, the size of a, of a AAA battery that would tell you how you were feeling, whether you, you, know, you might become sick and send some information back to base. Now, that is an interesting proposition um, when we've come from the heart pacemaker and brain stimulator uh, area. But what is a medical company doing saying they want one of these in everyone and it doesn't take the observer too long to realize that they will diversify with time you know uh, medical conditions are often linked up to health insurance premiums and health insurance premiums are look uh, you know hooked up to your propensity to pay employment data and perhaps even where you live and reside um, we don't realize the proximate symbiosis between various providers in this global space. A lot of the big tech giants own so many 
medical companies uh, and are continually researching and we don't realize we're giving this data away quite freely. Even our ability to use things like Google Maps is providing live traffic reporting through crowdsourcing. I mean, how long will it be before we start to really pay attention seriously to security, as you say? Gartner in 2004 published a report by Reynolds, uh, was the surname, in 2004 saying this stuff on implants and security, you know, um, and it being the most secure means, it's all hype and it's all lies. And this was Gartner. They came back a few years later and uh, toned down their hype story and said, well, you know, possibly if we introduce the right security features, this might work as an identifier. And again, it was a published paper by Reynolds when CityWatcher uh, came on board with the very cheap uh, uh, employees of three or four people being tagged uh, and implanted. But the issue is... You're right. We haven't paid enough attention to security. As you said more recently, uh, when you uncovered uh, the Wi-Fi access being available freely to anyone and, and, and plugging in your USB device uh, to charge your phone, you found out, hey, well, th there are a lot of holes in these things. And I think security is often the last thing people think about, last oh, thing yeah. engineers think about. It's not the core competency or value, but it should be. Well, and, you know, we have a, a break coming up here in a couple of minutes, but I did want to point out something kind of uh, related to this is the fact that uh, last year when I asked three different medical device companies about, you know, well, how are you securing your medical devices? All three of them said, well, we use NFC. We use uh, near-field communications. And so if we use NFC, they're perfectly secure. And... Then I asked them, I said, well, what about the devices like that laptop that you're connecting to through NFC? What if it's on the network? You know, what if it's connected to the Internet at the same time? And they pretty much went dark because they didn't really want to talk about the fact that, yes, that mm. creates a pathway directly into the medical device. It doesn't matter if it's NFC, if the device is right there on the network or on the Internet at the same time. So, um, yeah, there's, there's so much more we need to, to consider about the security privacy. Now, we're going to come up on a break, but when we come back, I want to start talking about some of the data um, within these devices and then also tracking and so on. So, uh, thank you, Katina. We're going to a break from our sponsors now. We're speaking with Dr. Katina Michael professor in the School of Computing Information Technology at the University of Wollongong, and she's definitely your ubervalence expert. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. 
case she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We are talking today with Dr. Katina Michael, Professor in the School of Computing and Information Technology at the University of Wollongong in Australia and also an Ubervalence expert. Before the break, Katina was describing some of the ways in which these implantables can be very privacy invasive and the fact that a lot of these devices just don't have any security built into them. So um, let's continue that conversation. Um, You know, we talked about the fact that they're implantable. Can you describe maybe... um, because I know when you've told me before some of the, the different types of embedded devices that you've looked at, what are some of the wide range of places within the body that the devices are embedded and why are they embedded there? What type of data are they collecting and, and what areas do you believe should be off limits? Fascinating question. Um the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. Uh, defined the right tricep as the place for an implantable uh, in the form of a personal health record to be located. So pretty much quite deep into the right arm, and you can find that uh, both in the Food and Drug Administration uh, website, uh, but also the patent database, the first company, the very cheap, to have a U.S. FDA-approved uh, implant uh, used it for personal health records, and it was in the tricep originally where it was approved by the FDA. Over time, as companies like CityWatcher.com purchased the very chip, the Baja Beach Club, for example, in Rotterdam in the Netherlands that still has this program, and the other one in Barcelona, Spain, which I visited back in 2009, um, what we find is that users have started to shift the device down to the hand, and the webbing between the thumb and forefinger 
And the reason for this was literally for um, maneuverability and the ability to wave your hand in front of a reader device because we're oh. all different heights. Um, and there are some people that are wheelchair-bound, oh. for instance, and if we got onto a, an implant regime where everyone uh, had it for identity, we would and need to be able to wave our arm because the reader wouldn't be placed, uh, the fixed reader wouldn't be placed on a wall at the right place as you entered and left the room, for instance. So we've, I've seen people put them in their arms. I've seen put them... People put them in their forearms, uh, their triceps, their hands, and the webbing of their thumb and forefinger. I mean, of course, there is really uh, no end to where someone could put an implant. One of the most recent implants, uh, which is supposed to give men uh, some form of sexual stimulation, is placed in the private part. It's called the Lovetron. So implantables, and we have the implant on a contraceptive, of course, we've had um, various contraceptives that have been placed in the uterus over time. Um, so this notion of placing an implantable device for a function or for convenience has, has started to kick off. But the implants are placed in many varied locations. We have brain implants, for instance, um, mm-hmm. that are supposed to help people with major depressive disorder from um, not feeling dark and, and, and down and emotional. Um, so one thing I do know, though, the limits for me from what I'm reading from places like the Mayo website is really don't um, interfere with existing medical devices. Don't place other devices or even cell phones uh, near implantable locations. Um, like I wouldn't put a, 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 an implant of any type, passive or active, uh, with any type of security near an existing heart pacemaker. It'd be asking mm-hmm. for trouble. Oh my. Well, when as you're describing that, I'm wondering is are all of these implants are you talking about the ones that the physicians have actually implanted or when you ta- when I you were saying that some of the people moved them from their uh bicep or tricep down to their um hand um, are they moving these themselves? Are some people putting implants in themselves, or does this all have to be done through physicians' offices? Um, so what I meant by that is different people choose to place it in different implant sites. Um, okay. And I could name very uh, public figures, for example, that have put it in their tricep, uh, like uh, Gary Rutherford, who was part of the City Watcher experiment, versus... Uh, uh, someone like Mark Gasson, who worked with Kevin Warwick at the University of Reading, who back in uh, the late 90s and early 2000s placed it in his um, hand and, and one in the forearm. So um, in the past, uh, before uh, the coating, the anti-migration coating was on the implant, it could travail through the human body, actually, from the implant site. Now most of the chips that are being used for implantation, both in animals and in people, have an anti-migration coating on it, which means that it just can't travel. Uh, it also de- would defeat the purpose if, for instance, I regathered an animal and I couldn't find the chip in the animal uh, if it started to migrate through the body. But it has happened and still continues to happen in some instances. Oh, my. Well, are they ever removed? I mean, how long do people keep these embedded devices within them? I mean, until the so, batteries go dead? or So many of these devices are passive. They carry no batteries. Um, they just broadcast when they're triggered. So uh, okay. if a passive device 
that has no batteries that is, has been implanted in the human body passes a rigged up walkway, it will emit a signal because it's being triggered by a reader to do so. So the antenna works to emit a signal to say, here I am, I'm here, and I'm this ID number. Most implants only have an ID number of about 16 characters, although with newer versions, uh, for example, the Cicardia device made by where Groundhouse, um, their 1.0 device, has a lot of storage in it. Um, it's, oh. it's like embedding almost the size of something a bit smaller than a smartphone, for instance, big, a bit smaller than your iPhone in your forearm. And that emits different things, uh, physiological characteristics uh, emanating from your body as, as the sensors pick them up in the Cicardia device to your tablet or mobile phone. Um, but yeah, I, I think most pacemakers, for instance, heart pacemakers, they last about 15 years before they need to be, their batteries need to be uh, replaced. But increasingly, we're trying to find um, solutions to battery development that don't require uh, batteries to be replaced with that level of frequency. Um, some of the dormant, and I call them dormant um, chips in Gary Rutherford, for instance, in people like Seraphine Villaplana from Baja Beach Club. Most of the people who have uh, participated in very chip trials, which are no longer, uh, have left the devices in there. And there's an interesting backstory of why they have, because very chip really never had a process of removal. So oh. it's all good and well <laughs> to be supervised by a, a GP or um, a general practitioner, a doctor, uh, nursing staff uh, to undergo a procedure. Uh, but the very cheap company never had a process of removal. So today on the MAUD database, M-A-U-D-E, you'll still find uh, a, 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 an entry from a 2007 individual who got a very cheap uh, injected into their body, requested its removal, and that has never been catered to. But there are many other exceptions as well uh, out there, but um, most people believe it's just going to stay there, it won't do anything, who cares? And then I, I ask them, but what if you get another one of these and maybe 10 more and maybe the future has uh, a bunch of other health-related nanobots in the body, you know, through a, a body area network, what then? Well, it's just like space junk in the body, uh, they describe, and they're not really fussed about it. I oh, wouldn't do it, um, uh, despite the fact there are no batteries in the passive devices that have been implanted, but uh, everyone in each to their own, I guess, Rebecca. Well, you talk about the fact that they, each device has like a number that is uh, given to it. So I, I'm assuming that number is associated with the data subject within which that device is embedded. But what kind of, of data then are these devices collecting and sharing and who's getting all of that data that comes from them? That's fascinating. Um, Good question. It depends on the application. For example, from some of the vanilla basic uh, ID implants, there is only an ID number that is emanating from that implant and nothing else. Um, The data is stored securely on uh, distributed databases that are password protected and usually two-factor authentication through some means, you know, an SMS to your your smartphone, for instance, and a passcode or something of that nature. So the ID in the implant itself don't store data. If it's a passive implant, it's just the ID number. But then gaining access to any number of uh, databases in the external world um, mm-hmm. is is an, is enough, I guess, of a security issue. 
um, we can talk about things like operationalized scenarios. That's uh-huh. in-body communicating with an external piece of equipment or in-body communicating with an on-surface to the body piece of equipment. So is it from your implant to your wearable? Is it from your implant to your iPhone? Is it from your implant to the nearest lamppost? And these are more of the things that we're emerging into a world of Internet of Things now where Mm -hmm. ubervalence really will be expressed in its, its, its almost its finality, which is interdependencies and handshaking protocols between various elements uh, in, a, in a network. So, you know, today we, we go through large shopping malls with our smartphones and don't realize that some shopping malls actually are anonymously tracking you via your mm-hmm. ID number on your smartphone. And no right. one has asked for your consent. It's done on blanket coverage and allegedly anonymously. The future, I think, may dictate something similar for the implants when we enter a shopping mall, we enter Amazon Go, we enter into a KFC uh, a food outlet, whereby the surroundings know who you are. You know, you haven't opted into anything, but you're being sent advertising information based on behavioral tracking, based on when you last frequented the store, based on who you are in terms of that identity number. And really, Ubervalence denotes that your location is even more important than your identity. Uh, and through this chip, we can almost definitely know that you have gone somewhere because you've, you, you, there's a transaction that happens when you're in an entry-exit gantry, gantry, whether it's a, a tollway, whether it's your bank branch, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your home. All of these will now detect that ID number if we enter into that stream. I mean, most grinders, people who implant uh, chips into their bodies say, no, we're just doing this to, to muck around and DIY stuff and to see how far we can go into becoming cyborgs. They discount the potential for global positioning systems mm-hmm. to locate them, uh, and they discount the tethering. I mean, they're very happy to talk about operational scenarios to show off their implant tethering to their tablet, but the minute you raise the question about location and global mm-hmm. location monitoring, even in-building monitoring, against your will, they say, oh, no, that's conspiracy theory. And you say, well, hang on a second. You know, if you don't have the right cryptography with the chip, if you don't have any security, as you've r- rightly said, then your, your phone... Your NFC sensor on your phone could interact with that implant. I've done it before uh-huh. with people that are strangers and have implants, and it comes up, the number comes up. With other people, with other applications, for example, the Chip My Life company, um, their social security ID comes up, their bank account number comes up, certain passcodes come up. Um, and so it's okay for now because there are limited deployments of this worldwide, but what happens when everyone potentially is carrying a chip? Then it is an issue. Well, and it comes so quickly, too. I mean, just look how quickly the Internet, I mean, exploded. I mean, for folks listening who have always been on the Internet, you might, you know, they probably don't realize it. But uh, but I remember very well in the 1990s, the organization I was working for, you know, we we were just learning about what can we do with the Internet and how can we make a presence. And so doing the research. And at that time, it was like, oh, there's only a very small percentage of people who even use the Internet. You know, do we even want to get on there? Just look, 10 years later, uh, virtually everyone was on the internet, and now everyone has smartphones. Everyone's streaming live video and audio. So, 
Um, I think my my point is, even though we're not, it seems like there's not a need for it right now. I think that can all of a sudden we can wake up one day and say, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> why didn't we put all of these uh, controls in for security and privacy back when we first started thinking about it?" But before we thought there was a need for it because now everything is tied together. I mean, like I mentioned, I'm hearing more about uh, at these conferences where they want to put a chip into babies as soon as they're born to start tracking all their different types of biological characteristics. And they say, well, it's to make sure that they can catch diseases early and make sure that they have, you know, uh, what's considered to be normal developmental progress, but I, I worry about all of that data and, and how it could be used potentially negative to them, like the uh, school that said, well, your DNA shows that you have a predisposition for a peanut al- allergy, so we don't want you here. So now all of a sudden you have discrimination based upon data from you know, these chips that might be analyzing your DNA or your blood type or any of a number of other types of characteristics. So I think controlling that data and who has access, I just don't see that happening right now. It seems like everybody's sharing that. I mean, are you seeing anyone who's actually trying to limit the the sharing of all of that data or protect um, it? I guess people limit the sharing of that data, Rebecca, when it has to do with access to their car or their home. Um, but then they argue that uh, proximity chips only allow you to be within 10 centimeters of your front door in order to allow you to unlock the front door. So nobody could sort of uh, make you un- unlock a door from afar. But uh-huh. a lot of work is going on into defining body area network standards. A lot of work in the medical space um, to do with, well, where is the hub device on the body? Um, should there be encryption? Um, we've got the different device standards, right? If I mentioned to you the medical device radio communication service standard, and that's really about the cardiac devices, the fibrillators, the pacemakers, the neuromuscular stimulators and drug delivery mm-hmm. devices. So there's a, there's a medical device radio communication service standards. There's the ISM band standard, which looks at security, the industrial scientific and medical um, radio device and radio band standards, which looks at RFID, things to do with microwave ovens and beyond cordless phones, Bluetooth, wireless communications, and how they, they would uh, interact with implants from a medical perspective. And then there's the IEEE 802.15.6 standard, which looks at real-time health monitoring. And I think you're getting at something very important, which is we need to take a step back. Yes, all of this looks fun. This looks great. This looks like it's going to be convenient. But in actual fact, we might be creating the worst-case scenario for identification, authentication, and encryption using um, these devices that are embedded. I, I know for people who have tried... Uh, to take the devices out themselves. They've found the difficulty and cannot do it without a third party. And I guess that's the ethical issue that I have with implantables Mm -hmm. is that you can't, you don't, you don't have a right of removal by yourself. Um, and that to me smacks of issues to do with, uh, you know, not being cohesive with the human rights declaration. Mm -hmm. Ah, I mean, as you're telling, talking about all of these, it's just making me think, um, What do we do? I mean, what would you like to see done 
to improve the security and privacy and safety of these devices? What what do you think needs to be done that's not currently being done? Uh, and what do you think uh, people need to think about before they decide that, oh, it's a good idea to go ahead and, and get this chip put in my hand so I can use it to start my car and lock my car and not have to carry around keys? I, I think you're on the right track. that You have given the answer already, Rebecca, with respect to um, the issues at hand. Basically, how the data being collected, the intimate data, the intimate physiological data, uh, integrated together uh, with um, behavioral traits, uh, work-related information, um, always on movement uh, device, wherever you are uh, embedded, uh, can basically disclose a lot about you. So whether, you know, do we have to really wait for a security breach to say there's an issue here with uh, the capabilities of implants? Do we really have to wait to, to talk about privacy? Isn't it evident to people? I think I have a sometimes difficult um, uh, way of convincing people that having something worn on the body as opposed to embedded is quite a different thing. Um, Many people fail to see the distinction, to be honest with you. And to those people, I really cannot convince that uh, an embedded device carries a, a much graver responsibility for us as engineers, as developers of new applications, but I think you're right. I think uh, many people are looking at this as being the new Internet, um, piggybacking onto the Internet of Things. Uh, they believe, for example, Google had a swallowable device that they were marketing, which was a swallowable chip, really, in the yes. form of a pill that you'd take one a day um, in order to have a password uh, that was secure on your application. But that seemingly looks right, but it has its own shortcomings. You know, what if I swallow your pill? What yes. if... Um, There's enforced injection for minors. What if uh, people's data um, means once it's disclosed, uh, it cannot be taken back and so they become uninsurable? Um, And it's the wrong data. You know, we we make these mistakes all the time with normal databases, let alone with people carrying microchip implants. So I think we have to look at the broader implications. I'm not so fussed about the grinders who want to experiment with their own bodies, although I think there is a fine line between experimentation and destruction of one's body. Um, but I think there needs to be some form of regulation just so we know that these devices, uh, for example, that are there to help people who need them for drug delivery devices, for insulin or for other, um, you know, beyond diabetes, uh, you need to make sure that they work and that are not interfered by other emerging technologies by grinders or others in society rendering the medical devices which are necessary for one's existence, you know, useless. So we have to be careful with all these standards that we're not mucking about with wants and conveniences versus needs and keeping people alive. Well, and that's such a good point. I mean, um, I don't know if you heard about the case where in a surgery center, they had a surgery uh, machine that did some automated surgery types of procedures, and this machine had two USB ports on it. And guess what? The uh, the surgeon and one of the assisting nurses decided they were going to um, charge their phones while they were in there doing surgery. Well, as soon as they plugged their phones into those USB ports, the network that that was attached to saw that as a malicious type of attempt mm-hmm. on the network because it didn't recognize those smartphones. They, you know, those were not devices that were 
um, supposed to be being used in that location. So it shut down the surgery machine. And, you know, it kind of goes to your point, are are all the engineers thinking about how everything's going to interact together when you when you have all these many different types of devices? So I think that's another good takeaway for um, for our listeners. They need to to think about if they already have a pacemaker, an insulin pump. How is this other new type of implanted device? Is that going to be impacted by these other? implants or is your existing implant that you depend upon to live is that going to be negatively impacted by something else being introduced into your body which is into your own body network if you will so um oh it's all fascinating um we we only have a couple of minutes here but uh Katina, I really love your books. Can you let the the listeners know what uh, your latest book is and if you have any new ones coming out so they can look for those on Amazon or their favorite bookstore? Yes, uh, we have an in-depth interview with um, Callisto Swear on technology and science uh, and religion, actually. Um, and ah. uh, the, the ability for people to question uh, various types of transhumanist beliefs, but also to look at uh, where, I guess, science and technology have a role uh, and a place um, for scientific fact, um, and where perhaps uh, faith-based issues uh, can also be considered when opting into various types of emerging technologies. It's a fascinating book. Uh, the professor, Callisto uh, Swear, uh, is from um, Oxford University, a professor emeritus, and it's a, an interesting read as opposed to some of the more transhumanist uh, ideologies that have been sold to us uh, by various uh, institutions in the UK in particular. So what is the, the title of that again? Religion, Science and te- Technology, Science and Religion. Technology, okay. Science and Religion. Yeah. Okay, great. So everyone listening, uh, do a search for that online, and I anticipate you'll be able to to find that then fairly quickly. Thank you, Katina, so much for being on the show. The time flew by so quickly, but I know you provided our listeners with a lot of very thought-provoking uh, points and valuable information about all the, the growing numbers of devices being embedded into humans and the concept of ubervalence. Today I've been chatting with Dr. Katina Michael, professor in the School of Computing and Information Technology at the University of Wollongong and also an ubervalence expert. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor, pursuing my goal to help all businesses and the general public be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues, and also how to mitigate those risks to better protect privacy. I hope you tune in to the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And also, contact me if you have uh, some any type of topics or suggestions for speakers. I'd love to hear them. Also, get in touch with me if you need any information security, privacy, and compliance keynotes, classes, or any more information about my Simmons360.com services. And you can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see some of my appearances on the CW Iowa Live morning shows and see the other types of topics we discuss there each month. So um, if 
again, you can get in touch with me by using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com or by visiting my site, Simmons360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org, and PrivacyGuidance.com. Be privacy safe in the week ahead. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.